Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo, and I'm here as always with co-host Joe Wolfond. What up, Cash? Well, in the NBA, actually a lot. Uh, and not all of it, not a lot of it is basketball, unfortunately. It's a lot of yeah. drama and injuries that are dominating the headlines right now. And I mean, don't get me wrong. In between some really good basketball so, being yeah, played. Th- for the that's record. what I was going to say. Like, don't get me wrong. There's been some great entertaining as hell basketball being played the races in both conferences uh especially in the west are riveting like you know i'm not at all saying that there's not real basketball and real basketball storylines for us to focus on but we would be remiss if we don't discuss some of the other stuff going on around the league and within that i think we will end up talking ball at various points today but i do think we need to start with the ongoing ja morant saga where he has missed the Grizzlies' last three games. He will miss at least another three more. And to be quite frank with you, it sounds like even if you just listen to the way uh, head coach Taylor Jenkins speaks at his press conferences, yesterday, if you listened closely to Dylan Brooks' post-game walk-off interview on TNT, I guess it was, or ESPN, I can't remember, where they ask him something about you know being without jaw and the injuries to the big guys, and like, you know, how they're approaching it. And then Dylan, and maybe it was just him not thinking and, and saying something that not everyone knew, or maybe he's just not, what wasn't even thinking at all and it means nothing. But Dylan did just say, well, we know like this is our team going into the postseason. And I thought that was a bit telling and I truly wouldn't be surprised if John doesn't play the rest of the season because while the Grizzlies, you know, the, the total time away so far is only going to be six games total until they make a decision. The NBA is still investigating and could still, and I assume will, eventually suspend him so you know the quick catch up in case you're living under a rock and don't know what happened is that John Morant flashed you know because like what appeared to be a gun it was clearly a gun now you know was I there do I know for sure it was a real gun not a fake no but he flashed what we all think was a real gun while dancing shirtless in the strip club on his own Instagram live okay this was not like a friend's and he was in the background. It's not like a fan's. This was his own. He decided I'm going to blast this out for the world to see while I am at the center of all these reports I'm denying that me and my friends are playing with guns too often. So uh, there's a lot of ways you can look at that. I mean, you can almost even look at it as like an inadvertent cry for help because for him to post that while at the center of that shit storm and those reports and everything is just seems insane. And anyway, yeah, the follow was pretty swift after that. He's taking time away from the team. The team's taking time away from him. The NBA is investigating the quick catch up on the, you know, the shit storm I talked about was that, well, first of all, people forget this too. Like last May during the playoffs on Twitter, rep- replying to a fan that had insulted him, he replied saying it's free to find out how hollows feel blush face, smiley emoji as a reference to, getting shot with hollow point bullets. There was the incident the incident in the summer where a 17-year-old alleged that John Morant and his friend repeatedly punched him in the head after a pickup game dispute and that, again, alleged that Ja then went into his house, came out with a gun in his waistband and his hand on the gun. It was alleged by a mall security guard that Ja showed up rolling nine deep after his mom called him following a dispute with uh, an employee at a shoe store and that Ja threatened the security guard. It was alleged by members of the Pacers in an athletic report that after on-court beef that spilled 
you know, off the court later that night in between Jaws acquaintances and the Pacers traveling party that a red laser was trained on the Pacers traveling party from an SUV that Jaw was riding in. And then obviously, of course, now we've got the, the situation of him actually flashing the gun. So uh, a lot to unpack there. I know we were talking off air and you had mentioned there's not really much new to say here because you think a lot of other people have covered it. Is there anything you want to add, Have feel anything you think is, is relevant or you want to get off your chest really doesn't matter. I have a couple things, but I'll let you go first. Yeah, I don't really want to spend too much time on it because I feel like it's been talked to death and everyone and their uncle has written a think piece about it. Yeah, mine's coming up and, tomorrow. <laughs> great. Can't wait to read it. Genuinely. Uh, but I guess I would just push back a bit on the cry for help thing and... It's not like I'm not going to say I have an issue about how this whole thing is covered, has been covered necessarily. It's just that, look, I, I guess most of the reactions that I've seen to it are like pleas for Ja to kind of get his shit together and not throw it all away. You know, not make mistakes that are going to derail a very promising career and a very promising life. And just sort of cool it with the antics and figure out whatever he needs to figure out in order to, you know, cut this kind of behavior out of his life. And whether that means, you know, cutting certain people out of his life or getting, you know, a little, like different voices in his circle, whatever it happens to be. I always have a little bit of discomfort with just sort of that tone of conversation anyway. Like it's especially in NBA media, like a lot of older, very often white men kind of. I don't want to say talking down or condescending necessarily, but sort of like giving... Yeah, preaching. You know, paternalistic life advice to young black men. And it's like, I just have a a bit of discomfort with that dynamic generally. And I'm not saying it's wrong to call out the behavior, but like, it's almost... I I would say like my immediate reaction to all of this, and and I'm not saying like, I don't want Jaw to to throw his career away over some bullshit either. I don't want any NBA player to do that. Like every player who makes it to the NBA is is basically a miracle, you know? Like it's almost literally impossible to do what what these people have done and to, to see it thrown away would be a tragedy in any case. So I'm, I'm not saying, you know, and especially for Ja, who is like obviously a very exciting young player to watch and, you know, it can't be overstated how important he is obviously to that Grizzlies franchise in like the next 10 years of the NBA so you know doubly so I guess in his case like people don't want to see that happen and I understand that but I guess you know my immediate reaction to hearing and seeing all of this stuff is more just I just want him to not do it anymore because it's bad not because it's like it could be a threat to his career yeah but because it's dangerous and harmful to other people you know like I kind of it's just like don't don't beat up teenagers and threaten them with guns. Don't threaten mall security guards. Like don't go around toting guns in a strip club and like making light of the situation. Not because it might like ruin your career, but because it's like the wrong thing to do. In the column I've got coming out on the weekend, part of um, it and what I wrote was that like, is he going down a path that can potentially ruin 
a burgeoning empire worth hundreds of millions of dollars between his contract and endorsement deals with Nike and Powerade and all that? Yeah, he can. And that is a shame in its own right because that, like those agreements will take care of generations of Morants. And so that is a shame in its own right. But to your point, and as I write about, that's not the story here. Because while he can ruin that, you know, burgeoning financial empire, that same path he's going down can lead to violence, tragedy, and straight up personal ruin for a guy who is a father to a three-year-old, to a human being in general, but to a, a, you know, a young dad of a three-year-old. That is the story here more than the financial ruin and the professional ruin that he can cause. It's time for him to get a grip on his situation for the personal side, not the professional. Like the Grizzlies and the NBA and everything, they should help him get a grip on his situation. But part of that is also making sure that, honestly, the ultimate punishment is a wake-up call. And that the column I have coming out is essentially that. And it's like, uh, it's not about judging or definitely not discarding John Morant, but I truly believe Everyone owes it to John Morant to hold him accountable because that's one thing in this that I've noticed. And like Jalen Rose spoke really eloquently about this uh, on an ESPN segment last week and can obviously relate to Ja as someone that is a former athlete but was a young athlete who dealt with some stuff, can relate to him in ways most of us can't. And what he mentioned in that, uh, I was going to say rant, but it wasn't. Like I said, it was a really eloquently thought out. Uh, statement but what he said was everyone's saying oh jaw's gonna cut these people out or whatever and you know he's gotta stop hanging out with these people but it's like you know as the famous breadwinner in your group and your crew and your family whatever it is you are now the leader like whether you want to acknowledge that or not you are now the leader these people will follow you especially the ones that are hanging off you even if they are just hanging off you because of what you are and represent now they will follow you because of that so like you need to be in control and take that control and that, and, and I fully like agree with that statement, and, and that's what I'm saying. I think what we do owe it to him is to hold him accountable. Don't just brush it aside as like, well, you know, there's been other young athletes in the past who have maybe, whether it's been inst- instances with guns or like uh, some minor brushes with the law early in their career, or even though in Jaws' case, he has, you know, he's never been charged with a crime, but you know what I mean? And then they've turned it around, and I get that, but you know what? That also completely dismisses, and I know just hearing these names are going to make people cringe. That dismisses the horrific outcomes of people like Aaron Hernandez and Javaris Crittenton. I realize that's going to make people cringe, but I say that because the, like those are the serious stakes we're talking about here when you're talking about a guy, forget athlete, anyone engaging in the kind of alleged gun-toting play that John Morant is engaging in. The last thing I'll say is that I know a lot of people, and look, I'll, I'll admit too, even myself, I said, like, he, you know, Like, what's he trying to prove to people in that life? Whatever. But, you know, a lot has been made about the fact that, like, you know, Ja came from this uh, stable middle-class environment. And, like, whether he's really about, the like, quote-unquote, the life that he's trying to put on display, right? Like, and at this point, though, that's completely irrelevant. Because whether he comes from that life, whatever is bad, like, none of that matters. The point is that if all these reports are true regardless of his background and what he's about and what he's not about, he is currently moving in a way that can end just as badly for him as it does for much less fortunate or much less famous people in that life every day. The fact that Jaws is a professional athlete does not insulate him from the horrific outcomes that can come from leading a life like that. Anyway, that that's all I had to say about it. And I think 
like the Grizzlies, the NBA people, and just sponsors, whoever. Just make hold him accountable. And again, doesn't mean you completely discard him. I'm not saying that, but definitely hold him accountable and make sure whatever the punishment or whatever it is, like, is enough of a wake up call for him to truly like make the changes he needs to make. Yes, sure, for his professional career and everything that means for his family, but more so for himself and for his own safety and the safety of others. Yeah, I think that's well said. I, I mean, I don't think we need to belabor the point. Like that's yeah. that's it right there. If he comes back at any point this season, it's going to be strange, I think. Like it's going to feel strange. Yeah. But I guess we'll see kind of like how he carries it. All right, now obviously, you know, uh, uh, big picture wise in this grand scheme of life, less important, but from a basketball perspective, other Grizzlies news that is very important to their season on the court is that Brandon Clark suffered an Achilles injury that, you know, based on the history of Achilles injuries and timelines probably keeps him out for all of next season too, but like obviously keeps him out for the rest of this season playoffs. And then Steven Adams is out for at least the remainder of the regular season with a PCL sprain. So, you know, between jaw Adams and Clark, they're obviously missing a lot. They had they had lost a few games in a row. They just beat uh, the Warriors in a grudge match on Thursday night. They've been overtaken technically. I mean, they have the same record as the Kings, but the Kings appear to have the tiebreaker because they are in second, Memphis in third. They, you know, any chance they once had of maybe catching Denver first, that's out the window. I think now it's more about just kind of where they finish between I guess two to six, but even two, like given the injuries and the way Sacramento's rolling, I don't think Memphis is going to keep pace with them. So uh, probably see them finishing somewhere between three and six. And I'd have to say now, like it's not exactly a hot take, but barring jaw coming back, which I I just doubt is going to happen this season. Seems like they're now more of like a, just a a tough first round out team than, than a team with any realistic postseason aspirations. No. I mean, I would say it depends, like, apart from, like, losing Clark hurts for sure, but if Ja is back at some point, and if Steven Adams is back for the playoffs, then I, yeah, I mean, I see them as a team that would probably be in position to win a round, like, you look at the teams around them, too, and it's like, how far are they realistically going to fall, like, maybe Phoenix winds up passing them. But then, you know, and I'm sure we'll get into talking about this, like they're going to be without Kevin Durant for the next two to three weeks. So, you know, and and I know we were sort of talking about this off air too. I just, their defense is still super strong. And Adams is definitely part of that. uh, and, And Brandon Clark was part of that too. But even without those guys, like I have faith in that defense to give them a high enough floor that they're not just going to completely crater. And I, I don't know. I mean, I kind of think it's going to be hard for them to fall further than fourth. So going into like a four or five matchup, uh, you know, with, with Adams and, and Morant back, like, I think I still feel pretty confident in them being a team that's going to make the second round. Yeah. With both guys back. And again, I realize it's just speculation, but I'm just not, I, I feel like Jaw's not going to be back this season. And because because of a league suspension that you think is going to come down or because uh, of like a, a decision that he's going to make to just sort of take more time and... I could see it end up being... I think it'll end up being a league suspension. 
maybe like a combination of the time he agreed to take away plus the league suspension. I don't know. I mean, there's four weeks left in the regular season. I don't know. I guess it's possible. Like he just returns for the playoffs or something. I don't know. Again, it's all speculation. I don't want to pretend like we know, but I just have a hard time seeing it, I guess, to your point, like what you were saying. It just seems like it'd be like an awkward... I have a hard time seeing him come back. And if he doesn't, I get what you're saying. Like their defense and that the floor they have is high enough that like they can absolutely compete in a first round series. I just don't know if the, at that point they'll have the firepower. I mean, if Adams gets back and it's no more, it'd be what? Tyus Jones, Desmond Bain, Dylan Brooks, Jaron Jackson, and Steven Adams. Like that's still a pretty good starting five. Um, I mean, that's then, like a really tough sco- starting five to score on in yeah, particular. Yeah. And then, but then you kind of run into a lot of like depth questions and stuff that I, I I just think it would be really really hard for them to even get out of the first round if Jaws not back and that's you know look that's no fault of their own because <laughs> at full out this team looked very capable of contending yeah no I mean it's it's brutal and it, like it, it is not the most important thing in all of this mm. but this is a really promising season that is circling well, I'm not circling the drain but it's threatening to come completely unglued um but yeah i mean i the the brandon clark thing is tough because we were already talking i remember like what you thought they needed to add another piece and i don't think luke Kennard is sort of what you had in mind before the deadline (laughs) you suggested you know another big forward type and somebody like when they're playing jaron at center, like somebody maybe even a little bit better than Brandon Clark to play next to him, even though the the Clark they killed Jaron yeah. front court pairing has been dynamite for like three years in a row now. Uh, you thought that they could stand to upgrade there, and now they don't even have Clark, and filling out those lineups could prove to be really difficult, and especially considering that Jaron often finds himself in foul trouble. It's like at the end of games, if he can't be out there. Uh, yeah, the the depth is going to be tested and strained in a major way. So I, I don't know. I mean, look, it's uh, we'll, we'll see how it plays out. They had a really nice win over the Warriors last night, and pretty much any time Tyus Jones has been asked to step into that starting point guard role, he's handled it with a plum. Like I think he is a starting caliber point guard. Like he's not John Morant, obviously, but. He was a much better defender than John Morant. Like they, the last, certainly last year, they were they like twenty and five without Jaw last year, because you know they they managed to make it work on offense and their defense was just spectacular. So you know maybe they can ride that formula to a, a decently strong finish and make some noise in the postseason. But they're definitely yeah in a, in a much tougher spot than they were in a few weeks ago when it seemed like they were going to be one of, if not the favorite in the Western conference. Like I, there was a point in time early in the year when Denver was really struggling on defense and when Phoenix was banged up and obviously didn't have KD yet, when you forced me to answer, even though I acknowledge at the time that it was certainly going to change, you forced me to say, okay, you're picking right now. Who's coming out of the West. I think I picked Memphis, right? I think you did too. Yeah. You know, that was maybe like a couple months into the season, but like they looked like the best team. And right now, I mean, there's just all these questions and a kind of cloud hanging over them. So, well, a Southwest Division team whose season is circling the drain, New Orleans Pelicans. And the reason we're going to talk about them today is because continuing on this unfortunate topic of injuries, most of which I guess are in the West, I think all of which are in the West, um, 
the Pelicans will remain without Zion Williamson for at least another two weeks. So to recap, first week of January, I believe January 2nd, Zion Mm -hmm. injures his right hamstring in a game. The next day, January 3rd, it's announced he's out at least three weeks due to a right hamstring strain. Then in mid-February, just before the All-Star break, it's announced that he re-aggravated the injury while doing on-court work as part of his recovery process, that he'd be out several more weeks. And then again, now the most recent update, at least another two weeks. That brings him to late March. Uh, Basically, if you go like two weeks from the last update, it's 80 days between when he first suffered the injury to when he, the earliest he would come back. And I don't think that's when it's going to be. And then you're talking about like two weeks left in the regular season. And given his injury history and the way the Pelicans have managed his returns, I have a hard time envisioning it, like them kind of squeezing him in for the last two weeks of a, of a tense regular season or just randomly bringing him back for the playoffs. So I think it's possible we might've seen the last of Zion Williamson this season uh, after he played 29 games. Yeah, 29 games. So his four seasons in the NBA so far would have been 29 games, missed the entire season, 61 games, and 24 games. Obviously, I'm not breaking any news here when I say that the guys had rotten injury luck, or if not luck, whatever you want to call it, the way his body is constructed, the way his skill set and his play style in combination with the way his body is constructed just is not conducive to surviving the rigors of a long NBA season. It's starting to feel like not luck. Right. Exactly. I mean, exactly. That's what I'm saying. Exactly. That's why I'm saying, yeah, it's not really rotten injury. Like it's more so about these like physical factors and whatever. But there are clearly factors at play here that seem to indicate this guy is not built. Unfortunately, I'm not saying through any fault of his own. I don't know that, but it does not appear that he is built for the rigors of an NBA season. Unfortunately. Or he's just not built to play the high impact style of basketball that he plays. But then the question is if. Zion isn't playing high impact basketball, then what really is he as a basketball player? And I mean, the answer is he's still extraordinarily skilled, but he is not Zion, right? Like, I don't know that he can actually play any other way. And yeah, I mean, I'm, I don't know that we even needed sort of this season's cascading injury situation to illuminate for us that, you know, maybe his body type, and style of play isn't really conducive to NBA basketball, but um, it's it certainly feels that way now if it didn't before. And I don't know. I mean, there's... I think it was the first time the setback was announced in mid-February, and we were going back forth, and one of the messages I sent you was like, I don't know if I can remember a guy who every single time he gets injured seems to suffer a setback as part of the recovery. But like it, it yeah. genuinely feels that I'm, I can't go back in my head through every injury he's had, but it genuinely feels like every major injury he's had at least ends up with like a re-aggravation in the recovery process. And I had sent a message to you being like, how does this guy's body not properly heal? And you, you know, mentioned because of the way he plays and like the same reasons that he's getting hurt are probably the yeah. same reasons why he's then suffering setbacks. Like, but it's not about the healing. Like these setbacks are suffering while he's doing like ramp up work. Right. Like this one, I think happened doing a three on three drill or something like that. When he broke his foot, he was doing off season workouts. So it's not like idle rehab where yeah. like his body is not healing properly. He's having these setbacks where he is doing the work required to get himself back into game shape. Yeah. Like upping the so, load. So, it's 
I, I don't think it's it's about healing. It's about like the way that his body responds to certain stressors that are put on it, I guess. And I don't, I don't want to talk out of turn. You know, I'm not a, a biomechanical expert here, but just sort of reading the tea leaves, that seems to be what's going on. And uh, I just, it, it sucks so much, man. Like he was so unbelievably good when he played this year, like so good. And I don't need to tell listeners of this podcast how fond I was of the Pelicans team with him on it and how dispiriting it's been for me to watch what's happened to them in his absence because you know even apart from him not being there it just it's a little bit vexing to me that after how well they played down the stretch last season following the trade deadline when they got McCollum and how well he fit there right away they just haven't been able to recapture any of that magic this year. And when I, I wrote about them actually late last week, and the, the numbers might have changed a little bit on this front since then. I know they had a nice win against Dallas. Uh, was it earlier this week or on the weekend? But um, they, last year, after getting McCollum, with him and Ingram on the floor together, and it's not a huge sample because obviously, you know, they got McCollum late in the season and Ingram, even after that, missed like 12 or 13 games down the stretch with an injury himself. But they were plus five per hundred possessions with those two guys on the floor last season. And that was obviously without Zion. This year, the two of those guys on the floor together without Zion, minus 11 per hundred possessions. So... Now, a big part of that is Brandon Ingram hasn't quite been this not hasn't quite has not been the same player this year. Now, some of that was injury and him coming back. And I would say the last week or so, it does seem like he's kind of rounding back into form. But I'd say like the last two, three weeks, he looks yeah. more like himself. He was yeah. rough when he first came back from exactly. that toe injury. And so that's what I'm saying. That minus like a big part of that is that, yeah, it's Brandon Ingram and CJ McCollum the court together, but like for the most part, that was not Brandon Ingram. Yeah, and I think McCollum is also playing through a thumb injury. Maybe he hasn't shot the ball as well as he usually does. But just the team as a whole lacks a certain element of dynamism offensively. I mean, we've talked a lot about the shooting limitations. Those are still there. Like McCollum and Ingram are both, I think, just overly reliant on mid-range pull-up jumpers. There's a lot of that. And because Valanciunas has also struggled, like they're not getting the kind of interior scoring that I think they sort of need to compensate for the lack of three-point shooting. And I don't think they are leaning into their three-point shooting enough where they have it. Like Ingram's a really good shooter who just doesn't shoot a lot of threes. Uh, Trey Murphy is a phenomenal three-point shooter who just doesn't get that many plays run for him. Like, yeah. it's And then weirdly, even though they desperately need shooting, fell out of the starting line. Like, I don't know. There's still yeah, a lot in favor of... Jo like, you know, Josh Richardson came came over at the deadline and sort of started eating into Trey Murphy's minutes. And I just, I don't know, man, it's the, the offense has been really rough. They've been like 23rd or something like that since Zion went out. Yeah. They're 20th overall now in offense for a team that uh, one of my bold predict predictions was that they'd finish with the most efficient offense in the league. Now, okay, obviously you take Zion out of that. I wouldn't have said that, but yeah. what I have said that they're based almost bottom 10. No, like, they, they should have, and I thought still had the pieces to be a good offense between uh, Ingram, McCollum, you know, the big presence of JV. JV, to me, regardless of what the numbers say, and they probably show a bit of a drop-off at least, I would say in terms of like eye test only, 
has been one of like the most glaring drop-off guys in the league this season. Like you watch him and it's just, man, that does not look like the same player it was last year or the last few years. Like just something, just lost a little bit of quickness or not strength, but I don't know. It just doesn't look the same when he's down there trying to score inside. Like it, um, and that defensively really too. Yeah, I think, I think he's taking a step back defensively. And so it yeah, all I adds mean, up. They are nine and twenty-two since starting twenty-three and twelve. They're thirty-two and thirty-four now. They're in ten. They are only a half game up on the Jazz in eleventh. Like they went from you know fighting for that two seed, three seed kind of range to now like clinging to their play-in lives with yeah. Zion out at least another two weeks. For for one brief beautiful moment when they were twenty three and twelve, they were the number one seed in the Western Conference, go. and now they're clinging to a, a play in spot. It's it's tough, and I think also Impressive. you know Alvarado and Nance are now going to miss time as well. Like this team's just so snake bitten, and obviously it starts, it almost starts and ends with Zion because if he's not healthy, it almost doesn't matter what else happens. But like, man, Ingram's health has been super spotty as well. Like. Ingram, Zion, and McCollum played 10 games together, that trio, and like 170 minutes. And they were dominant in those yeah. 170 minutes, like plus 17 per 100 possessions or something crazy like that. And it's, you know, the, the funny thing is they, all these limitations that we talked about, it's like those were still there when Zion was there. It's just, it didn't matter. Because Zion is that much of a game-breaking player where he can overcome all kinds of roster limitations just with his sheer on-ball gravity, like his downhill force, his interior scoring prowess, his speed, his athleticism. Like no team is equipped to deal with that. And it just makes everything easier for everyone else. And suddenly, you know, it doesn't it doesn't matter that there's not that much shooting. Like they they can just score on the interior and like so much help is going his way that it's opening up cuts and like there's so much more space on the floor just because he has that magnetism that draws defenders to the ball and warps defenses and without that it's like well we're really seeing all these limitations come to the surface and um i, I don't know what they do with that it's like go going forward do they try and build a team expecting that zion is going to be in this perpetual state of you know, dude, I think, out, you like have a, to. I think you yeah. have to, like, I think if you're realistic as a team builder, I think you have to, because there's a lot of evidence now to suggest like, that's what it's going to be other than maybe a, like a random good year here and there, like for whatever reason, you can stay healthy and gives you 60 games. I think you got to build a team expecting that Zion's going to be out of the lineup half the time. Yeah. And I, I mean, look in the, in the grand scheme of things, that's just not an ideal situation. Like, I know his contract was structured in a way so that there are a lot of like games played incentives. Like they, there is some measure of protection in there from like a cap perspective for the Pelicans if Zion doesn't play that much. But still, he is taking up you know that certain amount of cap space, and it's just even if you try to build around him in the sense of like he's going to miss all this time, and we need to find players like this to fill in the gaps, it's still team building with a hand tied behind your back to have the guy that you are counting on to be the guy miss half the games. Like it just doesn't work. And again, I'm not, it's no, not saying it's anyone's fault or that it's Zion's fault. It just is 
what it is. And I also think there's like a, I think there has to be on like the mental psychological side, there's going to be a feeling of like just the wind being taken out of their sails all the time, right? Because even, okay, last year he was out the whole year, but it had started, it had got to the point where you were pretty sure like he's not coming back this year. And the Pels were like, you know, feisty and competitive and they traded for CJ. Like even though he wasn't there, and they probably knew in that locker room, look, we're not competing for a championship this year. There did seem to be like this really fun, you know, um, measure of like momentum that they had, right? Even though they weren't a contender when you knew Zion was out. Whereas this year, because, you know, he was expected to be back and they were expecting big things there. The injury this year really seems like it took like the wind out of their sails. And we've talked off air about like how depressing it is to watch New Orleans now, not just because of his injuries, there's other injuries too, but just the way they play, the rotate, like... Because we saw what it looked like when he was there. Right, that's what I'm saying, right? And that's the difference, is like, I feel like this year there was more of like wind taken out of the sails, and it seems like even just like, you watch them play, and maybe it's me projecting and watching them, but like, they just don't seem to have that same it oomph. factor. Yeah, oomph is a good way to put it, that they had last year. I mean... Okay, I'll, I'll preface this by saying I don't even really know functionally what the difference would be between like, okay, no, we're reorienting this and I guess we're building it around Ingram now and expecting that Zion's going to be perpetually injured versus no, we're still building it around Zion. Like in terms of those avenues, like I haven't given it enough thought to think about like the kind of divergence in terms of the route, like what that would entail. I think just sort of looking at it on its face, I'm saying we're still building this thing around Zion because that is our only hope of ultimately competing for anything of significance. And maybe it's like you get two seasons where he's relatively healthy and plays like 65 plus games and is healthy for a playoff run. That's still what you have to be building for is like, let's catch those two seasons and let's build as as good a team as we possibly can around him and hope that we can kind of catch lightning in a bottle. Because if you're just giving up on that, then in a way you're kind of giving up on everything. You know, like you're committing to sort of being middle of the road in that case. And I think you still have to hold out some hope that you can keep him healthy for, you know, some amount of time, you know, some season, you know, on a consistent basis. Like that's... I think you still have to hope. Got to keep that candle burning. No, I get it. And it is, you know, like that's obviously their highest ceiling outcome is even if it's one out of the four or five years they've got them under contract. Like I do agree that like that's still their best chance to actually win. Before we take the break, do you have any thoughts on the laundry list of other Western Conference stars that are lost for some period of time due to injury? The the KD thing, him... Yeah, dude slips on a finally comes back, plays three games. They look great, go three and oh, have a 128 offensive rating in those games with KD on the floor. He looks unbelievable, 81% true shooting in those three games, and then slips on a wet spot during warmups and rolls his ankle, and he's going to be out two to three weeks. And my immediate thought when that happened and when the sort of injury timeline was announced, and there was before that, there was like a report that he was going to miss the rest of the regular season or or could miss the rest of the regular yeah. season, which I suppose could is possible. Too. If they're in decent, you know, playoff position, don't feel like they need to push, 
they might just keep him on ice and have him as fresh as possible for the playoffs. Even if he comes back and plays like seven or eight games, which is really what we're looking at, you know, if it's like three weeks before the playoffs, I was just thinking how weird it's going to be if they wind up winning the championship and he's literally like he he plays like, you know, anywhere between three and like 10 regular season games with this team before they go on a run. Like I'm trying to think of any kind of precedent and there really isn't because even as it was, I don't think we've ever seen a player as good as Durant traded mid season before. Never. And we've seen you could, some, you could argue in any sport, by the way. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know, like, I don't have enough of a frame of reference, I guess, for cross-sport yeah. comparisons of that nature. Juan Soto is pretty damn good. Yeah. Wayne Gretzky mid-season. also was traded once mid-season, but it was like, let's... I don't think... Gretzky, it was at the very tail end. Yes. Of his pro- We're not play. talking about the off-season trade from the Oilers to the Kings. We're talking about the mid-season trade from the Kings to the Blues. He was yeah. still a point-per-game player. He wasn't what KD is at this stage of his career. Some cross-sport uh, content for you this week. <laughs> So, yeah, we've seen, like, you know, mercenary championships before. Like, you know, obviously the the most recent one being the Raptors. But, like, Kawhi was still there for the whole season. This would just be so weird if this, like, he's just there for the playoffs, basically. I don't know. I can't. I don't know what that would feel like. He might, if you go between the regular season and playoffs, if they actually were to win the title, like, there's a chance the you know, the best player on the team, the guy who would probably be the favorite to win finals MVP going into the finals will have played less than 30 games total between the regular season and the playoffs. Yeah. And I mean, in the meantime, like, they didn't have any trouble dealing with the Thunder the other night without KD. And, you know, there's obviously still a lot of talent on the team. Booker is playing out of his mind right now. Uh, I just wrote about Josh Okogie, who has been spectacular, you know, in, in jumping into that starting rotation. But it's like, I mean, this team gutted its wing depth to get KD. And it made sense because they're like, oh, well, we have KD. So who cares? Like, you could trade all the wings in the world. Like, you've got the the one that matters. And, you know, they're not going to have him for a while. And they're going to have to make do with Okogie and Tory Craig and... Uh, Ish Wainwright and TJ Warren and all these sort of uh, stop gaps, I guess, and and hope that that Booker and Chris Paul and Aiton, I guess, can sort of carry the offense through. When the deal went down, the one thing I saw is like, okay, well, if there's a risk, and it wasn't just me, obviously, it was everyone who was saying, well, you know, look, since coming back from the Achilles injuries, had these knee injuries, and he's only he's missed like forty percent of his team's games. If there's a risk, that's what it is. It's like at this stage, but. Then the thing is, like he, the injury he ends up having, it's because he slipped on a wet spot. You know, it's not like, oh, he started playing and then it's like, oh, the knee acted up or the leg or whatever. And you're like, oh, we got to rest him. Like he slipped on a wet spot yeah. during pregame layup line. Like just an unfathomable. Which, by the way, happened to Jonathan Kaminga like a night later. Really? Yeah. Kaminga's out now because he did the exact same thing in warm up. He slipped on a wet spot and sprained his ankle, I'm pretty sure. Did he not so, play in that loss to the Grizzlies? No, he didn't play. Oh, I didn't even. Oh. Well, so geez, that, that's just you know a, a, another point uh, in favor of like this has nothing to do with Kevin Durant's get your shit together, mop boys around the league. vulnerability. Uh, this this could happen to anyone of any age. Yeah, apparently, 
uh, if these floors are not being mopped properly. So yeah. going on with the condensation on NBA floors. All right. So there's that. There's Doncic is seems like a day to day thing with a sore thigh, like a thigh strain, but the MRI, like there's no damage. So I don't, that's not really at the same level of like these other injuries. LeBron, we know, I think is out at least another couple weeks. But like, man, the Lakers, the new look Lakers, the much better built and better fitting and more full of real NBA players, LA Lakers, actually look pretty solid since the deadline. AD, you know, is back and playing out of his mind. You know, the, the last game they played uh, and won, you know, AD comes back from having his nose busted up a la Steve Nash and plays through it and has this gargantuan effort to lead them to victory. They're in the play-in mix for like the first time in weeks, if not months, instead of chasing They're, they're a game and a half out of the top six. There you go. They're That's in where we're at. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, they're two games out of fifth. Like, obviously them being without LeBron remains concerning, especially because his, you know, it's still at least a couple weeks away. It's not like that's the target return date. But I will say, crazy enough, given how this season started and went for the majority of it, the way the Lakers have played and the, the, the way the new team is constructed, I am less concerned about them without LeBron right now than I am about the Pelicans. Uh, as we just discussed, okay, maybe not the Suns. The Suns will be fine with OKD, but I'm just less concerned about the Lakers without LeBron than I obviously would have been weeks ago. And then, uh, is there anyone I'm not thinking of? Is there any other big? Well, Western? the Mavs without Luca for I guess who knows? Right, like how I long. said, but that seems like more of a day to day thing. More of a and, day-to-day. At, and at least the MRI did come back with like no damage. So even if it's more than day to day, it doesn't. Hopefully, it's not the kind of thing that's going to like sideline him really long term. Uh, but between yeah. Luca, LeBron, KD, the Grizzlies injuries. I mean, it's not new, but Towns obviously. Out yeah, for the Towns Wolves. hasn't played in God knows how long. Uh, Shea's been out for the Thunder. Yeah, although he did come back now. He played their last game, I believe. He didn't play in that game against Phoenix. He, he might have play. played the game before that. Yeah, he, I think because he did play a game this week. But yeah, he had been out with an abdominal strain maybe, but he was also in health and safety protocols or something. Anyway, a lot, a lot of guys in that "quote unquote" race for uh, the, the you know anywhere between fifth and tenth in Dude, the West. Fifth, pretty much all of those teams are are dealing with injuries and right now. Thirteenth are still only separated by three games. The Blazers are in thirteenth. Even I, me, who was high on them coming in, has pretty much given up on them. They've looked pretty bad, but like they are still only three games out of fifth. Like as bad as they've looked, as hopeless as they've seemed you know a team with dame playing the way he ha- is still only three games out of fifth where it's like hey they just catch lightning in a jar for two weeks and all of a sudden we could be talking about them in a four or five series like it, it is still insane how compact nine teams are three games out of fifth with seven teams to I, leapfrog i understand still- that Quite, quite an undertaking with 14 games or whatever I left in the season. Completely agree. I'm just saying, if we're talking about that compact picture, it does extend all the way down to 13th. One thing that appears likely to happen at this point is that the Kings appear likely to get the two seed. Yeah, like the money with, with what's going on with the Grizzlies and the fact that, I mean, in in this whole bunch up of teams now, like I, the the teams that were probably like realistically going to catch them or sorry, not catch them, like they're the ones who caught up to the Grizzlies, but who would realistically finish ahead of them, Memphis and Phoenix, both dealing with their own stuff. The Kings have been 
the healthiest of all these teams all year, the most consistent of all these teams. Uh, I'm excluding Denver from that because they're just completely running away with the conference, obviously. But I think it seems like the Kings are going to finish with that two seed. And then I'm very, very interested to see what happens with the three, four, like whether Phoenix winds up catching Memphis, because if not, and if they wind up in one of the four or five spots, then one of them in Denver is not making it to the conference finals. And that just opens the path for another one of these teams to jump in. And then, I mean, it's the, the Warriors like have a decent shot at, at finishing in the five seed. Right. And I mean, you, I guess you start to wonder if we'll see teams strategically avoid being in the sun's bracket. Like if it is the Warriors and they have a chance to maybe tank their way down to sixth instead of playing for fifth, then maybe they'll try to engineer that some way, but it's going to be risky because it is so bunched up that if you intentionally lose games to avoid the five seed, you might wind up in the play-in. Seeing how the seeding shakes out is going to be really interesting because we have a distinct possibility of sort of a bracket of death in the West where you know all of Denver, Phoenix, and Golden State could be in that bracket and... And the Lakers too, who might like at full strength be, you know, after that Nuggets Suns tier, you know, the Lakers as a playoff team, fully healthy, are as dangerous as any of these other teams. I think you could say it's not likely that all four end up there, but it's very, very possible that you could have the Warriors, the Mavs, the Clippers, and the Lakers as your four playing teams. Like that is a very possible outcome. Yeah, it's going to be wild. I mean, it's... Uh, like right now, I, those I, teams are 5th, 6th, 8th, and ninth, yeah. And they are separated by two games. So like, very, again, very possible those are your four playing teams. And we talked early in the season about how we felt like the, the West playoffs this year were just sort of going to be like hockey playoffs, just total anarchy. The seeding right. almost doesn't matter. I don't think that's necessarily true with Denver. Like I'd feel pretty confident in them beating whoever winds up in the eighth seed. But I, I'm feeling like, you know, pretty much any other matchup could go any which way, just looking at it now and how it might shake out. So, And even Denver, even though I think they're the best team, even though like they should win a best of seven way more often than not. I don't know, man. Like, yeah, they've if they, if they like catch the Warriors in That's the first what I'm round. Saying. Like, then... yeah, they looked way better than the Warriors. But if they end up matching up with the healthy warriors in a one versus eight am i saying they're fine like they're absolutely taking this no i'd be like well they should win but i don't freaking know it's the warriors man it's gonna be a bloodbath in the west playoffs but it's gonna be really entertaining for us with no stakes <laughs> and we also just like we kind of just skated past the fact that we're talking about the sacramento kings as a two seed in the western conference you're king's prediction coming into the season obviously looking fabulous but how great would it have been if instead of making that bold prediction about the timberwolves finishing for if you had made it about the kings then you'd be looking like a real genius right now even though they're not first but still yeah i think like pretty much everything that i predicted about them came true i said they were going to be like one of if not the most entertaining team in the league to watch that they were going to play at a blistering pace that their offense was going to be elite and their defense was going to be terrible all of that is true, except I was like, yeah, that should net out to them being like a 500 team and they'll at least make the play. <laughs> Whereas like their offense is 
so good. I mean, we're talking right now best offensive rating in the history of the NBA. Number one in the league this season. And, you know, the defense is very bad. I think it's 25th. But that still works out to them being the second best team in the West. Give me give me a Sacramento Clippers or Sacramento Dallas first round series so we can have the first play, NBA playoff game that has a team hit 200. <laughs> and lose. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm still like, as, as much as I've loved watching them this season and was like, came into the season as a Kings optimist and I've only grown more optimistic about them as the season's gone on and and they've continued to do everything that they proved to be capable of, you know, like very early this season, like they've sustained it and then some, you know, I still have some questions about the playoff viability. I think it's going to be going to be really interesting. And like, that's one where I'm going to just be watching the matchup and that's going to have so much to do with, with whether they wind up, able you know to win a series or more because again if they wind up in one side of the bracket when both denver and phoenix are on the other side certainly not out of the question that they could find themselves in the conference finals yep. um but you know they they are going to have some questions to answer about their inexperience about whether their offense and the certain players and the principles that it relies on can hold up against more physical, switchier, more prepared playoff defenses, and you know whether their own defense can avoid being exploited to the point that you know they wind up being a first round out. Like there, there are still questions that I have about that. But th- there is no team that I am more excited to watch play a playoff game than Sacramento. And oh, and that that crowd is going to be my god, unreal. Yeah. Oh, oh, the one other injury thing was the Lonzo thing. I mean, we don't. Oh, it's man. just this is tragic, talk about man. depressing, dude. Uh, yeah, Lonzo, he's going to have a, a third surgery. Arthroscopic surgery to repair a small meniscus tear in his left knee on January 20th, 2022, that was supposed to keep him out six to eight weeks. And now, 14 months later, we're talking about him undergoing, what, a third yeah. procedure as part and of this? Another just- six-month rehab. Yeah. So then you're looking at 20 months minimum for something that was originally slated to keep him out less than two months. Horrible. He he had really just like found his niche and like the optimal role and circumstances for himself in Chicago too. Like he was such a big part of what they did defensively, like him and Caruso together, just an absolute terror, such an important connective passer for them, injected them with much needed pace. Like they just looked like a, a complete team with him there. And since losing him, it's been a disaster. Like everything's gone to shit. It really has. And I, you don't think of role players like Lonzo, like sort of connective pieces like that as being the types of players that can kind of make or break a team. And I'm not talking make or break as in like he could make the bulls a championship contender, but like he made them very functional and like a solid top six like even you know they were top four for most of last season type of playoff team to now being you know outside the playing picture basically yeah like that's that's how impactful it's been and uh it's just uh, it's just awful like for for a player who had really come into his own and uh who who i loved to watch yeah man you and me both 
All right, why don't we leave all that brutal news and kind of somber segment there and come back and talk some real basketball. And I can't believe I'm saying this, but a real basketball team, the New York Knicks. That sounds great. (laughs) What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Scores Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative, yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. Well, fun, those New York Knickerbockers, 39-29, and 29, 5th place in the Eastern Conference, 3 back of 4th place Cleveland. They're only 1 up on 6th place Brooklyn, but they're 3.5 up on 7th, so they're technically closer to you know having home court in the first round than they are to being in the play-in. They somehow have a top five offense. They made a great deadline day acquisition with Josh Hart, who has really infused them with a lot of great stuff and energy. Now they have lost two in a row, including a home loss to the Lamelloless Hornets when they didn't have Jalen Brunson. Yeah. It was also like the best game Gordon Hayward's played in two years. Um, so you know, I don't know if this week has put a damper on on your thoughts about the Knicks or has made you sell some of that Knicks stock if you owned any at all. But what do you make of this team? I mean, like how real are they? I mean, if they're real, like they're fifth in the East. It's not like we're talking about a team that would even be favored to win a round. But even as a fifth place team, 10 games above 500, I'd say to you, how real are they? I think they're as real as they appear to be. Like they are a real fifth seed. <laughs> I, no, I, I don't mean that disparagingly at no, all. They've, they've been... You know, they're not as good as they've been playing recently. You know, what's funny to me about this, the last time we did kind of like a a full-scale check-in on the Knicks was around Christmas. And at that time, they were in the top 10 in offense and defense. They were like ninth, I think, on both sides of the ball. And we were kind of marveling at that and wondering how sustainable it was. And I remember saying at the time, I do believe in the defense. Like, I think the defense can sustain as top 10. I don't believe that the offense can. And now here we are a couple months later, and they're fifth in offense. They've actually sunk down to 16th in defense. They are fifth in offense, Cash. And they've been number one since the trade deadline. I just don't know what to make of that. Like, I I do and I don't. Like, I understand kind of how they're doing it because it's not a very good shot-making team. They're 22nd in effective field goal percentage. So to be 22nd in effective field goal percentage and fifth in offense, you kind of just have to be nailing everything on the margins. And they are. They've been a monster offensive rebounding team all season. They take very good care of the basketball. Part of that has to do with them just like being a low passing offense. Like they don't pass the ball a ton and that allows you to take good care of the basketball. So low turnovers, offensive rebounds, and they get to the free throw line a lot. You know, I guess your mileage may vary in how sticky you think that stuff can be and how much you think that can continue to kind of be the lifeblood of a top five offense versus, you know, just having shot makers. But, uh, you know, it's been a sort of tried and true formula this season. And it's like, I don't <laughs> like Randall kind of crystallizes my feelings about this team in general. And that end of game sequence against Miami last week crystallized my feelings about Randall. 
ball goes off his heel somehow comes back to him and he drains a three it's just a perfect microcosm of you know like like julius randall as a whole julius randall's season as a whole down the stretch of that game like the knicks just in crunch time they're all over the map they're doing great things they're doing terrible things it's always an adventure and more often than not lately they've been the team coming out on top and in that game it's like okay they're up one randall is like over dribbling over dribbling okay he's like trying to to, to do a bully drive that he works into a post up. He turns his back, not looking, gets his pocket picked by Tyler Hero, and Hero goes the length of the court and hits the go ahead layup, right? And then the next possession, it's again going nowhere. Jimmy Butler deflects it. It's like like going out of bounds. Randall collects it and like just turns and chucks up a shot right before the buzzer. It somehow hit the back of three. his heel and kept going straight instead of getting diverted. Like it, it defied the laws of physics. It was like uh, the yeah. spit that went at Keith Hernandez. A, a real magic loogie. Yeah, it made no sense. That, yeah, and I, that's what I'm thinking. I'm like, this makes no sense. Randall shot making has been awesome. Like it's been pretty much. I mean, I guess not quite at the level that it was at two years ago because he, he shot like 41% from three that year and he was, I think, at like 35% this year. But he's really ramped up the volume on the three-point shooting and like way more of those shots are coming off the dribble too, I feel. And for him to even be hovering around league average on like the degree of difficulty of those shots is very impressive to me. And I do think like his his driving game looks better to me pretty much than it's ever looked. And that that is the one thing I can point to and like feel good about and feel like it's sustainable. I think Brunson being there has helped in that regard. Like it's he's more able to attack with an advantage, even though that's not like sort of his preferred mode of offense. Like he was getting to do that a little bit more. And, you know, Brunson is also there to sort of siphon attention away from him when he is operating on like those middle isolations. And he's just like, I think his body control is improved. I'm the the handle is still shaky to me, and uh, the passing is still like f- for a power forward is still above average for sure. But like, um, there are a lot of reads that he misses and is not like the most accurate passer in the world. But he can also, you know, he can snap off some really nice cross court skips from the post and and things like that. So you can't argue with the results. Like you can quibble with the process, but the results have been staggering and you know to the point about the drive game and just sort of his work inside the arc in general he's at 56 percent from two-point range which is i think pretty much the highest of his career like even that season a couple years back when he made all nba because he was shooting the ball so well he was at like 47 percent on twos so i do think this is the best version of him that we've seen and i've still again i've said before maybe i just have an aesthetic bias against him I just find it hard to trust it because of how it looks sometimes. Um, But, you know, the way the rest of the team, I guess, has fallen into place around him has been really impressive to me. Like the the heart addition has obviously just been a home run. I love the pace that he injects them with. Like they are a, a slow, walk it up, grind it out kind of team. And now they've just introduced this kind of unpredictable element where he's just shot out of a cannon and he was getting them out in the open floor and between him and Grimes both, right? Like, I think there's just an energy quotient there that has picked up. And also just like the two of those guys defensively can create a lot of havoc. So 
I like that pairing a lot. Like Brunson's been unbelievable. Emmanuel quickly. I'm like head over heels in love with Emmanuel quickly. You know, he had a really rough game last night. That game he had in Boston a few nights ago, the double overtime win when he had, I think, 38 points and was just getting all manner of runners. With Brunson threes. too. That quickly started that game in with yeah. Brunson out of the lineup and they won that game. That's right. He's been incredible. And like so good defensively too. Uh, like as yeah. a guy who can just like slither around screens and really smart defender, really smart defender, man. Like his, his peel switching. If you just sort of like pay attention to him for a string of defensive possessions, you'll just see how, how fluidly he like peels off and exchanges assignments with guys and like directs traffic, like really communicative. Fred Katz wrote an amazing story about Emmanuel Quickly's defense. They have a nice sort of collection of, well-fitting pieces honestly uh and and despite the sort of shot making limitations like it's re- it's really working on both sides of the ball well i guess it's not working that well on defense they're they're like 15th but after all this i still weirdly trust the defense more than i trust the offense so cash I. yeah so do i you know mitchell robinson we haven't mentioned him he sort of anchors it and man has he honed his craft like he is not nearly as jumpy as he used to be not as foul prone like way more solid understands you know playing drop coverage and playing between two guys better than he ever has before uh and has just been like a super imposing last line of defense and just in terms of like the way they defend as a team they give up a ton of threes they accept that as a consequence of just doing whatever they can to to protect the paint and I don't know. I mean, I guess you could say they're losing that battle now because they've been an average or below average defense, even though I think they have the capability of being better than that. But I don't know. Maybe again, maybe this is just like my eyes deceiving me. But when I watch it, I'm like, wow, this team seems really hard to score on and kind of like a pain in the ass to play against. They look a lot better defensively than they look offensively. And yet the results say the opposite. Uh, The best way I can describe watching Julius Randle play in his offense is that it always looks like he's trying to fit a square peg into a round hole, but Mm. to his credit, he actually jams it in there. Like, you know what? I think that's the best way to do it. Like, it doesn't look like it makes sense or that it's going to fit or that he, but hey, if you find a way to get it done and it gets in there, like, what, what can we say? At the end of the day, that is, you know, the name of the game. But at this point, I do believe this is what they are. And it's like a fifth place team that probably doesn't win around. But for this season, like that's fine. And that's really exciting for New York. And Brunson now being there, I think also changes like the future outlook. And you can start talking about that ceiling going forward. Like it doesn't feel as much kind of like a one-off as it did a couple years ago when they had that season. And it was really reliant on Julius Randle's jump shooting. And then they lost to Atlanta. Oh God, and- yeah. And then they lost to Atlanta. Like that season team felt like much more of like a one-off. All right, we can still laugh. Smoke and mirrors. Yeah. Whereas this year, even though there's some of that, it's not nearly to the same degree. And you can actually see some sort of like plan or process that could play out in the coming years. Now, the one thing I'll add to that, and it's something I've told you off air too, is I do think if they do want to look at this big picture wise and even beyond this year, and they want to see some sort of sustainable growth and a ceiling that might take them into contention level... I don't think you can do that with both of Julius Randle and RJ Barrett here. Like, I don't think either of those guys is good enough and is multidimensional enough to be paying both of them like a combined 50 plus million dollars over the next X amount of years. Agree? I do and I don't because right now, 
Barrett, I guess, is kind of the elephant in the room because you can yeah. talk about all these players who are sort of exceeding expectations or playing above their heads, and he's the one guy you can kind of point to and be like, he's been a disappointment this year, and he's not really fitting the rest of the team, I don't think. Like, he he gums up their offense a bit. Like, he is not shooting the ball well, and so he doesn't have a ton of off-ball viability like I he's a good cutter but like not a good enough one I don't think to really make up for the spacing issues that he presents and then when the ball's in his hands it's just a little bit stilted like I I like his driving game sometimes but sometimes it's just like a little bit too sticky with the ball like and you know his finishing is sort of only okay and uh definitely has a bit of tunnel vision so and his defense like can be really high level, but it also sort of waxes and wanes in terms of, I don't even think it's a question of effort, like more just a question of focus, I guess, where there are times when he's really locked in and times when he gets a little bit lost in the sauce. So from that perspective, yeah, I understand like you maybe want to find a player who fits better, but I think the, you know, the reality of the situation right now is like him on that contract is like, I got to think of that as negative value or like at worst neutral value, which means if you do decide to move off him, you're probably not doing so in a way that improves the team. So you kind of might as well move forward with him. And it's, you know, they're not in a situation where they're going to have cap space anyway. So what would be the purpose of that? Like four years into RJ Barrett's career, you look at his shot chart and his like finishing ability from various zones on the floor. If you look at his cleaning the glass page, it is all blue. So he his sophomore season, he shot 40% from deep, and that obviously gave him a good mark. But if you take that away, if you look at his finishing at the rim from mid-range and from deep, other than his shooting from three in his sophomore season, take all take that away. He's never finished higher than the 43rd percentile among wings in accuracy from any spot on the court. Like He's an inefficient finisher from almost for basically every spot on the court whose playmaking ability and like playmaking vision has, does not seem like it's improved much through four years. Yeah. It's it's not great. <laughs> no, it's really not. Um, but again, I ask, like, what's what's the alternative? You know? I'm not saying it wouldn't make them more flexible to just like have that contract off their books, but I I don't know that like trading him just for the sake of trading him would no. be a net benefit either. Like I think there are still some things that he does well and some ways that you know he helps the team now and could certainly help them in the future if he I guess actualizes his potential in a more cogent way. But I mean, like right now I would say pretty much all their best lineups exclude him. Mm-hmm. Like that, you know, they're at their best when it's like Brunson and Grimes and Hart out there together rather than Barrett occupying, you know, one of the wing spots. And I don't know. I don't know what what you're really supposed to do with that. But I think like the I like that they have these guys who are going to make quick decisions and sort of like attack off the catch in a really rapid way. Like that is that is what Grimes does for them. Like that's Hart is a little bit more passive, but like at least he's going to be a really quick ball mover. And uh, you know, if I if I'm looking at sort of what the difference is between this team and the team that we were talking about a couple years ago, okay, for one thing they have Brunson and that is a huge huge difference maker. But the other thing is like 
that team back then kind of played this smash mouth brand of basketball. They were physical. They beat you up. You know, they could score on the interior. But like that was all they can do. And this team just has like more facets to it. Like they have real speed on this team now in a way that they didn't before. Between, you know, between Brunson and Grimes and Quickly and Hart, like they can really get up and down the floor super fast. And I, you know, they don't always lean into that as much as I feel like they could, but they at least have that element. And Barrett to me is just kind of a slow player, like slow decision maker, a slow mover with the ball in his hands. And that's why I think he sort of sticks out like a sore thumb sometimes because, and especially like when he's playing next to Randall, like Randall should be the guy who is sort of permitted to do that because he can still get you buckets and play make and like do things that lead to efficient offense in a way that Barrett can't right now. So yeah, when it's the two of them out there together, then you really notice it and it's sort of duplicative and not in a way that is beneficial. But yeah, I mean, on the whole, I I feel like they're a, a good team. And I don't think they're going to win a first round series, but if, I mean, right now it's shaping up them in Cleveland in the first round and, you know, I don't hate the matchup for them. I would definitely lean toward the Cavs, but it's going to be a competitive series if that's, if that's how the matchup winds up shaking out, you know, I wouldn't expect it to look anything like that series against the Hawks looked a couple of years ago. And uh, I think they're like you kind of alluded to there is more a sense of like momentum and building towards something now than there was then and uh i don't think that it's like you know i don't think this is a flash in the pan i guess is my point like when you ask you know are are they real like yeah they're they're a real quality team that i think is going to continue to be a quality team and i guess i'm curious to see the ways in which they can supplement it in the future and you know that that is where you get into the barrett point and like what you do about that situation apart from that i'm not really sure but um but yeah they're good man and and honestly they're a fun watch which is i i didn't love watching that team a couple years ago even as they defied expectations and put together what i'm sure was a really fun campaign for knicks fans they were a slog and this team's not like they they can be at times like we mentioned the, the you know the randall stuff and the barrett stuff and um you know, the various ways that they like to muddy up the game, I suppose. But uh, it's, I don't think it's like a slog, like the the way that some Knicks teams in the past have been. Yeah, that's for sure. All right. You want to do a, a make or miss each fan shout out and get the hell out of here? Let's do it. So Steph Curry's back, but the Warriors still don't look right. They still can't win on the road at seven and 26. They are tied with the Pistons for the 27th best road record in the league bottom four team on the road overall they're 34 and 33 they're technically right now tied for the sixth to eight seeds but they have the sixth seed because of tiebreaker and while they are only three and a half back of fourth they're only two clear of 11th so as outrageous as it may seem or sound make or miss wolfond for only the second time in nba history and the first time since the Jordanless Bulls did so 24 years ago, the defending champions will miss the playoffs. Miss. I just don't see it happening. I know that their schedule is about to get really tough, at least in the next couple of weeks. And that's what would maybe 
give me pause and make me think about my answer a little bit harder. Here's what their next few games look like. They're playing the Bucks and the Suns at home. They've been great at home, but still, those games are no picnic. Then on the road against the Clippers, the Hawks, Grizzlies, Rockets, Mavs. On the road. Those are all on, on the road. road. Where they're seven and tw- where they are the Detroit Pistons. <laughs> yes, exactly. Then home against the Sixers and Timberwolves. And then things start to ease up after that. But that is like a pretty hellish run of games. So for a team that is two games up on 11th right now. Yeah. Um, I still think even if they wind up as the 10 seed, I'm picking them to come out and make the playoffs. I just can't. I can't totally. So in that, in, that, in that situation, they'd have to win two win or go home road games to make the playoffs. I know. <laughs> I know. But like, there's, it doesn't make you. sense. There's no the rhyme or reason. The there's no real rationale for the road woes. Like, it does, it's the same team I that's dominating at home. Like, it just, it feels like something that is ultimately going to reverse itself or something like it just feels like it has to because i don't know well maybe the way maybe the way it reverses itself is they get the seven or eight and lose a home play in game to go home look i i have pretty much quit this team as like a championship contender I'm, i'm not putting that i'm not putting them in that that stratosphere anymore but i still can't quit them as like a okay just get this team into the play in or the playoffs or whatever and they will figure it out like their top gear is still up there among the best teams in the league. And, you know, obviously the question is, like, can they sustain it? Like, is the bench good enough? Is the defense going to be good enough? All this stuff. But I can't see them missing the playoffs entirely. Uh, I, I just can't. So I'm riding with them. I would lean towards them obviously making the playoffs, but I think they've put themselves in a very tricky situation. Where I was like, yeah. If I had to put money on it, I'd say they make the playoffs because of the Warriors and Steph's back and they'll figure it out. But like the fact that they've been as bad as they've been on the road where it's like, yeah, there's no explanation for it. But it's also, it's, you know, a 33 game sample now where they've been pretty goddamn awful on the road. They are, you know, on balance, a slightly better than 500 team. They're a 500 team. Like, yeah, that team is at risk to miss the playoffs, especially with their upcoming schedule. So while I would slightly lean miss on my own statement, I think it's a conversation worth having. So they're 20 and 21 with Steph in the lineup this season, 14 and 12 without him. Yeah, they are a 500 team is what they are. Um, So yeah, better in the games that he hasn't played. And that's very strange considering that they've still been like seven and a half points per hundred possessions better with him on the court. I guess there's just something about the, the mix, I guess, like when he's not, in the game, the lineups without him somehow are able to figure it out. Whereas when he is playing, it's when he goes to the bench that suddenly those lineups don't know what to do with themselves. Maybe that just has to do with the rhythms of the game. I don't really know how to explain it. But uh, it's not like him being there has just sort of elevated them to the level that they played at last season. Then like, just, oh, if only Steph can get healthy, then we'll go on a run. Like that, that hasn't happened. And granted, like, you know, Wiggins has missed a bunch of time as well but i don't know man i'm not i guess i'm making i'm making an argument against my answer here but uh i like it's a make no call it call it just more of a of a feeling or an instinct or whatever or just they're the defending champs and i guess i'm just gonna believe that they'll find a way you know not to not to repeat not to win the west or anything like that 
not even necessarily to win a round, but at least to make the top eight. They'll find a way to do that. Like I just have so much more trust in them than I have in a team like Minnesota or even Dallas at this point, you know? Uh, so I'll call it a make. All right, Cash, my make or miss for you. We had this incredible uh, game between the Sixers and the Bucks on the weekend where the the Bucks got out to this 18-point lead. They were up by 18 with like two minutes left in the third quarter, but the Sixers came storming back. Harden and Embiid were monstrous down the stretch, and they pull out a massive win over the Bucks to end the Bucks' 16-game winning streak. My make or miss for you, Cash, is and we're looking at the matchups in the East. And right now, if the season ended today, and you know, presuming the teams all advanced out of the first round, the Sixers would actually play the Celtics in the second round rather than the Bucks. And the Sixers have not had a lot of luck playing against the Celtics really at any point in the Joel Embiid era. But we both also think that the Bucks are the favorite to come out of the East. So my make or miss for you, Cash, is despite the, the, the Bucks being the favorite in the East, in our minds anyway, the Sixers would actually be better off if they want to finally make it through the Eastern Conference Finals playing Milwaukee in the second round rather than Boston. No, I'd still call that a miss because... While I understand, like matchup wise, and you know, coming off that big win, it does seem like matchup wise, it does seem like it's a better matchup for Philly against Milwaukee than it is for against Boston. But I also, as much as matchups clearly do matter in the playoffs, and yeah, that factors into a lot of like how I end up projecting what I think will happen in the playoffs. I also still think there's something to the fact of like, you know, do I think this team is better or not? And I came into the season picking the Bucks to win the championship. I would still pick them or at least come out of the East. I've talked about, you know, the trust issues with other teams that I don't have as much with Milwaukee. So like, I still can't actually bring myself to be like, oh, the Sixers will, have, will be better off and have a better chance to make the conference finals if they match up with the team I picked to win the championship instead of the South. You know what I mean? Even though I understand the matchup concerns. Mm -hmm. So no, I'm calling it a miss. I would go the other way. I think in spite of the fact that I believe the Bucks to be the best team, I think they're a better matchup for Philly than Boston is. I think Boston's the way that Boston is able to defend Philly in spite of not having a defender like Brooke Lopez, who can kind of handle and beat in single coverage, like the way that they sort of swarm and like their help concepts. And uh, they've honestly always given him more trouble, I think. And maybe that just has to do with like the Bucks pick and roll defense where kind of like the whole concept behind it is like, we're not going to really give you the opportunity to have your big man roll all the way to the basket. Like Brooke's going to make sure that he's there. And Embiid's like, that's cool. I don't want to roll all the way to the basket anyway. That's not really what I do. And he can kind of just stop and pop for those short roll jumpers. And, you know, Harden can do some things against that drop coverage as well. Like what I thought was actually really interesting about that game is, you know, a big question I have about that matchup is what what is PJ Tucker's role? Because the Sixers, you might think, need him to guard Giannis, but then he gives Giannis somebody to guard, quote-unquote guard, and rove off of and completely destroy your offense at the other end of the floor. And when he went out of the game, I don't even think they pulled him. I think he had like an injury that caused him to miss like most of the second half of that game. 
things really opened up for Philly's offense. And having Embiid switch to being the primary on Giannis actually like really took Giannis out of rhythm, I thought. So if they can sort of rig the matchups that way, where maybe they're getting away with putting a wing on Lopez and you know having Embiid take the Giannis assignment and not having Tucker there cramping their spacing, I kind of don't hate it for them. And I just... Based on precedent, I don't know. I kind of think they would have more success in that matchup than they would against Boston. But but you don't you, agree? No, I do, I I'd say you bring up a lot of salient basketball points, and uh, I'll counter with a non-basketball point. In that, if the Sixers are going to beat, whether it's Milwaukee or Boston or whoever, and maybe get to the conference finals for the first time since two thousand one, I'd say uh, Sixers fans just better hope. They'd have to do it in like six games or less. Because if the opposing team gets a third win and puts the Sixers backs <laughs> against the wall, let me tell you what's going to happen with Joel Embiid and James Harden on that deal. Like we know for Harden, for as great as he is and for as great as playoff performances as he's had in his career. We also know, as I've said before, when the going gets tough, James Harden gets lost. And then from Embiid's perspective, as I've said before, it, it still holds that even after last season, in eight times in his career facing elimination, Joel Embiid's averaging 22 points on 40% shooting while recording more turnovers than assists. I don't want to see Embiid and Harden together in, in facing elimination. So if they're going to get it done against Milwaukee or Boston, I'm going to say, again, to counter all of your salient basketball points with a point that has nothing to do with the matchup or anything on the floor, they'd have to do it in six games or less. But who would you feel better about them doing it in six <laughs> games or less against Cash? Boston. Interesting. Boston is their boogeyman. They just I know, can't, I, they I can't figure out that matchup. And the, the Bucks matchup is tricky for them in other ways, but it's kind of been less tricky for them over the years, I think. So I, I don't think that win means a whole heck of a lot. Like I would say that, that was like a bigger win for Philly than it was a loss for Milwaukee, if that makes sense. Like I don't think the Bucks necessarily need to sweat losing that one. Whereas like I do think that was like a very necessary confidence and belief builder for Philly. I'm not going to read too much into that, but it's just... I, you know, thinking through the matchup and having seen it play out over the years, like, I, I don't know. It just Boston gives them headaches in, in a way that I don't know that Milwaukee actually does. Yeah, that's fair. All right. Let me get to a fan shout out. Get out of here. Yeah. Okay. This week's fan shout out goes out to Michael. That's it. Don't know the last name, but he goes by at MBR424. Yo, I, I, let, let, me, let, me, let me grab this one because I, I know Michael. Michael is Michael Rosenbluth. He is my friend's dad. And he is always extremely generous. Like he he reads all my stuff and is always very complimentary of it. I wasn't aware actually that he listened to the podcast. So it was nice to see well, him. He reach started out. listening this season, apparently, based on my now he did not disclose this relationship to you in, in our Twitter DMs. But I did find it interesting when I reached out to because he had tweeted at us and then I reached out to him like, hey, like, you know, give me a bit more info, we'll get you a fan shout out. And he actually said no shout out is necessary. And I thought it was like, no, it's, you know, this guy's just supporting the show. I'd still like to give him a shout out. Well, yeah, I mean I I just if we're gonna give him the shout out, we gotta do it properly. Uh Dr. Michael Rosenbluth is a wonderful human being and one that I really appreciate. And I tell him all the time, but I always appreciate when he reaches out to to give a kind word, whether it's about something I've written or in this case about the podcast. 
And um, you also, you'll appreciate this cash. I don't really know how this came to be the case, but for like my friends, pretty much entire circle of friends, Michael, his dad, uh, has like come up with a nickname for and mine like probably starting 15 years ago for reasons that I still don't fully understand is the Godfather. Wow. So <laughs> I like that. Yeah. It's quite the honor. He clearly thinks highly of you. There you go. So the best, uh, the best part about our interaction on Twitter, and it may, it's even more hilarious now that I know he knows you is at one point uh, when he talks about, he enjoys the podcast, like uh, our thorough discussions, but then he does say it's sometimes a little bit over my head, but I still appreciate it. And I replied to that. Saying thanks, I'll try to get Wolf on to explain things in a way our listeners would understand when he gets into the weeds about plays and stuff. And he replied with thanks. <laughs> well, he's trying to play it is, off like he doesn't know me, eh? Yeah. The funny thing is, even when you mentioned peel switching today, I was like, oh, I wonder if I should get Wolf on to explain to our user, our listeners, even though he has before, what peel switches are. Because we're going to give Michael the fan shout out today. And I remember Michael saying sometimes it's over his head. So that this is actually hilarious now that to, to find out that he actually knows you. Anyway. Thanks, Michael. <laughs> Thanks, Michael. Love you, Michael. Appreciate you, Michael. Appreciate all of our listeners, whether they know us or not. And the usual call out, reach out on social media, on Twitter, at Joey underscore double Y-O-U, at Joseph Cacharo. Email joe.wolfond at thescore.com, joseph.cacharo at thescore.com. Find me on Instagram, joe underscore 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 cash. Let us know how long you've been listening, where you listen from, all that good stuff. We would love to get you a shout out on a future episode. Until one of those future episodes, for Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Cacharo. Pound the Rock. 